look at God's Word in the New Testament to Luke chapter 2. The words are going to be on the screen behind me, uh, behind me to the left and right of me. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 39 to verse 52. And this isn't just some random collection of words and letters. This is God's Word to us. And this is what the Gospel writer Luke says. And when they, that being Mary and Joseph and Jesus, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let me pray quickly before we consider this passage tonight. Father, you know the day that we have had, you know the week that we have had, you know that the New Year's, that the Christmas that we've had, whether that has been a good time or not, And Father, for all the experiences that we have that are ever-changing, the jump from emotion to emotion, we're so grateful that we can be reminded you never change. And we thank you for your everlasting word that is contained within this book. And thank you for the truth that is contained within it. So Father, I pray for all of us here this evening. Lord, that you would plant the seed of your truth into our hearts and minds, that that we would be captivated by what you have to say to us, that we would see Jesus, maybe even for the very first time, clearly this evening. And we ask it in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. First words are very important. I'm sure that you would agree with me. Maybe you think of the first words that come 
with your favorite movie. Let me give you a couple of examples. First one is very obvious. These are the first words of this very well-known movie. Hello, my name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. Would you like a chocolate? Obviously, Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. Or maybe this one, maybe you might not get it right away. Who am I? You sure want to know. The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If someone said it was a happy little tale, if someone told you I was just your average guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. But let me assure you this, like any story worth telling, is all about a girl. That girl, the girl next door, Mary Jane Watson. It's obviously the first Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire. Unpopular opinion, the latest Spider-Man was rubbish. And if you want to convince me otherwise, talk to me afterwards, but it sucked. Or maybe you think of a song, the first words of a song. I'm not going to sing these to you. It's just a small town girl living in a lonely world. What's the song? Don't stop believing, journey. Okay, this is the most Presbyterian thing I'm ever going to do. I'm going to say something and the congregation's going to reply. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Baby, don't hurt me. Hadaway, absolute banger that is. Uh, just get a little bit emotional. Gilly's favorite song here. Would you dance? If I asked you to dance, what's the song? Any heartthrobs out there? Enrique Iglesias, hero. A few people love that one. I'm to make it a little bit, throw a bit of dose of spirituality of it. We, we think of the first line of, of When I Survey. What a wonderful song that is. When I survey the wondrous cross. And we're just swept away in our imagination. First words are important if it's in movies, if it's in songs. But maybe once you think of first words... Maybe think a little bit more personal. Maybe think about the, the first words that, that a baby makes. Maybe you know the first words that, that you made. Maybe your mums and dads have told you what your first word or first words were. Or maybe you think of, of the first words that are offered by a, a political or national leader after a great tragedy or a great triumph, and they, they are very significant. Maybe you think, again, even more personal. Maybe you think of the, the first words that, that you received after getting some painful and, and sad news. Or maybe you think of the first words that, that left your mouth. Or maybe the first words that you sent via text message when you finally sparked up the, the courage to speak to the one that you're madly in like with, as Gilly often says. First words are really, really important. And within the passage that, that I've shared with you, that we've looked at in Luke chapter 2, what we have is the, the first words of Jesus recorded to us. They're the very first words that we know left the mouth of Jesus Christ. And the gospel writer, Luke, records them for us in Luke chapter 2. What we're going to do tonight, very simply, is we're going to look at the, really the, the child Jesus, the only account that we have of Jesus as a child, the only recorded event of Jesus as a child, as a 12-year-old. We're going to look at that very we're going to look at that for a time. And then towards the tail end of our time, we're going to briefly consider the, the example of his, his mum, the example of, of Mary and what Mary has 
to teach us. So let's think about uh, the child Jesus uh, and what are we to make of this really rather strange and unique incident of Jesus as, as a 12-year-old boy. It's actually an event that's really sparked with, uh, with much controversy and there's lots of uh, conversation and conclusions surrounding the actions and words of Jesus as a child. Was Jesus disobedient? Surely his mom and dad should have done a better, uh, better job parenting him. How could they leave him? We're not going to so much dig deep into, into all of that, but just to make you aware of it. But it's important to know what's actually going on. We just don't just jump into this as if this is just some drop in the ocean, but we want to understand what the context is. Within chapter 2, 12 years passes within Luke. We see Jesus in the temple at the beginning of chapter 12, and Jesus is there as a baby. And then 12 years pass, and Jesus is back in the temple. But this time, obviously, he's a 12-year-old boy. And he, the reason why he's here is, as we read at the beginning of the past that we read, that there's a significant event that him and his mom and dad are here to celebrate. It's the, an event that was very important for the people of God, the, the Jewish people. It was the feast of the Passover. Maybe you know or you've heard of, of the Passover. Maybe that uh, you sort of have an understanding. But if you don't, the Passover was really, really important. It recalled an event in the past that's recorded in Exodus chapter 12 where, the, the, where God protected his people and literally passed over their house during a set of 10 plagues. This was the 10th and final plague that came to them as they were in captivity in Egypt. And as a result of this plague that God passed over them, that he spared the firstborn child, God would release the people and Pharaoh would tell them that they could go and that they would lead to the, the promised land. But this is also a significant, this is significant for another reason. I made reference that Jesus was a 12-year-old boy, and that probably means nothing to us. But for the Jewish people, for a young boy to turn 13 would actually mean a boy would become a man. So this is Jesus, a 12-year-old boy. The last time he's going to be coming to the temple for this feast, this significant feast, as a boy, the next time, he's a man. He's a man. And there's a lot of significance with that. So as we read this passage, we read the feast comes to an end. And Joseph and Mary set off with their traveling group. And a full day, 24 hours passed, till they realized that their one and only son isn't with them. And we can maybe sympathize. Maybe we're a little bit critical. We're like, how in the world could they do that? But... We have to at least have some sort of sympathy with them, don't we? The dread and the fear of, of losing their son, I'm sure they may have thought the worst. And maybe you've got lost before. Maybe you can remember or call a time where maybe you're on holidays. Maybe you've been in a city. Maybe you've been in a shopping center and you have lost your way. Maybe you've misplaced where your parents are. And there's a dread, there's an anxiety that comes over us, isn't there? Or maybe you've lost your friends, again, maybe on holidays or in some situation, and you're, you're, you're anxious, you're like, where could they be? That's surely what was going on in the minds of Mary and Joseph. But when the realizing, realization sinks in, will they return immediately? And two further days of, of returning and then searching, they find Jesus. And where do they find their they're a very special, unique 12-year-old boy. Will they find them? Find him in the temple, of course. 
And what's he doing? But he's quizzing the Jewish temple leaders. Of course. He's not kicking ball. He's not finding a game of five aside. No. He's quizzing the Jewish leaders. And then we read in, in verse 48 that the response of Mary and Joseph, and they're, they're in distress. Mary is like, how could you do this, Jesus? And we would expect nothing less, surely. Mary challenges her son. If we read something along the lines of, oh, well, there you are, Jesus, come on, let's get back. I think we'd be a little bit concerned, wouldn't we? She's lost her boy for three days, and finally she sees him. And she wants to just unleash her emotion onto him. Then we get the first uh, recorded words of, of Jesus. And here they are here in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We must hear those, his answer in a gentle tone. The tone that we read those words is key. This isn't the response of a disgruntled child who sort of squints his eyes and a bit frustrated and stamps his feet to his parent. But there's genuineness connected with the words of Jesus in verse 49. Surely, within Jesus' mind, he must be a little bit confused because of all people, his mom and dad would have knew that he was no ordinary boy. Surely they would have been able to recall the, the supernatural events that we've already read about in Luke's gospel of the events surrounding his birth. And this was by, mean, by no means an ordinary birth. How Joseph would have received the dream at Gabriel, the angel visit Mary why he's named Jesus, what Jesus actually means, that he'd be the savior, the rescuer of his people. Surely Jesus is confused. You would have known that I'd have been at the temple. And as Jesus would have been growing up, he'd have been realizing in greater clarity who he was and what the rest of his life looked like. But what do you make of the second half of the second question of his reply? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. Just note what, what Jesus has just said in those few words. He has just called the temple, which is like basically the Jewish version of their church, his father's house. And what Jesus is asserting, the, the claim that Jesus is making is this, that at the age of 12, that God is his father. Therefore, claiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And we can't overlook how shocking, how radical, how controversial that is. We're very used to it. We just go, yeah, Jesus, Son of God, yeah, have that ticked away. But this is the first time that his words have been recorded, and this is the very first thing that he says. And he makes the claim that God is his Father and that he is his Son. In the whole of the, the Old Testament, which is precedes the New Testament, the phrase, my father, literally does not exist. It's nowhere to be found. In fact, I even underlined to extend this point a little bit more. God referenced as father is only found 14 times. 
And every single time, it's in reference to the nation, to the, to the people of God. It's never to an individual. But now, Jesus comes onto the scene, and in his very first recorded words, he makes the personalized claim that God is his Father. And fast forward 18 years when Jesus would turn 30 and he'd begin his, his public ministry, the time that we know most about Jesus, the claim that God was his father was, was all over what he had to say. He would always make this claim of his unique relationship with God. And as we think about how this applies to our life, we really can't miss the, the obvious here. And the obvious is that right from the onset, Luke is telling his readers, but more significantly, Jesus is saying that he is the son of God and that God is his father. And we have to note what Jesus does not say here. There's nothing else. There's no other identity claim made by Jesus. It's not that Jesus was some sort of good teacher that he was a wise man, as much as he encapsulates all of that in who he was. But that's not what Jesus says. But he says that he had to be be at his father's house, therefore making the claim that he is his son. And we're faced with the reality that this is the true identity of this 12-year-old child, that he is the son of God. Hopefully, I don't know if this is going to come up well. Yeah, hopefully you'll be able to see part of this. I'm going to read this quote. C.S. Lewis makes, says this about Jesus. He says this, you, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See the words that Lewis is saying to us? There's no, cent f- <laughs> There's no fence setting once it comes to Jesus. Jesus has not allowed that to us. He makes it super clear in the first words that that are recorded of him. He says that he's the son of God. And if someone says that they are the son of God, there's two things that we will result in concluding, isn't there? Either that person is the son of God or they are a madman. They are a lunatic and they need locked up. And there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground once it comes to that. And for those of us here that love, follow Jesus, we have acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God. And let me be gracious. If you're not a Christian tonight, maybe you have some sort of warm affection towards things about Christianity. You're not sitting in the middle. You're not sort of halfway to Jesus. But you're actually still saying that Jesus is a madman. And actually... It'd be better if you actually acknowledged that Jesus was a madman than rather than trying to deceive yourself. We either fall on our knees and worship this 12-year-old who would live to be our savior as the son of God, or we squint our face and mutter under our breath, madman.
One year uh, until he would enter manhood, Jesus knew exactly who he was and the events that lay ahead of him. And praise Jesus that he stayed true to that task of being about his father's business. He stayed behind in, in the temple to ask the teachers the questions that filled his mind and just use a bit of spiritual sanctified common sense we don't know but we can read between the lines what an unbelievable event that would have been as jesus asks these guys these really intelligent guys who would have knew their old testament from front to back and he asks them questions i wonder what questions jesus asked them i've been thinking about this i wonder what are the things that he wanted to know if you, maybe you know a little bit about your, your Bibles uh, and you come to passages in, in Isaiah chapter 42 and onwards and it talks about this guy who's going to be a, a suffering servant and, and that suffering servant was actually the one who would be the Messiah. I wonder if Jesus asked the question to these guys, do you know who that's going to be? Do you have any idea about this Messiah and what's he going to be like? I wonder in those moments, as Jesus knew his full identity, did these guys know it's a wonderful, wonderful moment. I'm sure it would have been incredible to have been there. Though, just a brief note, this passage has so much to teach us about Jesus. And we see clearly in this passage another thing about Jesus, which we need to marvel at, and it's actually the humanity of Jesus. Read in this passage, Luke makes two references to it, that Jesus is a boy of him growing and becoming strong increasing in wisdom. He, he lived and grew up just like any one of us. He endured all the, the ups and downs of being a child and then becoming an adult. We think about, and we just have thought about at Christmas, about the mind-blowing reality that the Son of God left heaven and took on flesh. And I suppose you wonder, think about, well, why is that? Jesus doesn't really start his ministry until he's 30 years old, does it for three years, then dies. Three years, that's really the majority of what we know about him. And we sort of have to ask the question, why doesn't God just sort of send Jesus down at age 30, whenever he could start all this? Why does he have to sort of live, be born and live for 30 years? And we really don't know much about that 30-year period. And then start his ministry. Why does he do that? God doesn't do that because it shows the utter commitment and devotion that Jesus had for your salvation. This singular story of Jesus a boy reminds us once again of the glorious plan of salvation, of God's saving plan, the whole point of the existence of every single one of us in this world, this creation. The one who would save his people, that being Jesus, had to be like his people. Jesus bears flesh. He's born in obscurity, grows up in a town that's not thought well of. He begins his ministry at 30, lives in poverty, is rebuked, and then dies a criminal's death. All part of the plan. And here's the identity of, of this boy, this 12-year-old at the temple, that he is, yes, fully human, but yes, he is fully God. And we read it, verse 52, and verse 52 says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And maybe you get a little bit uncomfortable reading that. Maybe you have the whole, yep, Jesus, Son of God, fully God, divine, and then that he's fully human. But how do we marry those together? If Jesus is fully God, why does he need to grow and increase in wisdom? 
Well, we do well to remember that, that Jesus is a child in this narrative. Yet he's fully human, but he's without sin. But actually, this, these verses paint a perfect picture of his development. Jesus grows as a child. He learns the many things that you and I would have learned. Jesus would have learned how to put shoes on, or probably better put sandals. He would have learned how to help his parents at home. He would have learned how to tell time. He would have learned the, the days of the week. He would have learned how to say please and thank you. Just like any one of us. His development as a human, it just doesn't happen overnight, but took time. But yet all occurred sinlessly. And that is the mystery. And if you can't fully grasp that, well then join the club because none of us will ever fully comprehend the mystery that is Jesus being fully God and fully human. We may not be able to comprehend this dual nature, but that doesn't stop us from putting our faith in him. Instead, we can marvel that Jesus as God is so far above us, yet at the same time has made himself known and has lived a life that we can relate to. And what we are to take away is that, that Jesus, as I've mentioned, was so committed to the task of being obedient to the Father and fulfilling his plans that even from the tender age of 12, at just 12 years old, here's Jesus. He's so committed. He's so set on completing the task that lay ahead of him. And for those of us here that know, love, follow Jesus, who believe, let me just present you your savior. Here's Jesus as a mere boy, utterly devoted to the task of living the life that you could not live, that would lead him to die the death that you could not die. 12 years old and utterly set on saving your soul. And for those of us here that, that do not yet believe, I ask you, just consider a marvel the perseverance and the commitment of Jesus. Jesus isn't far from our circumstances. He's not like the other figureheads of other religions that is aloft and far-fetched and we can't connect, can't relate to. He's not a savior that is lackluster or apathetic of, of what you're going through, but he's totally devoted to offering you the main point of your life, the main thing that you need, and that is the salvation of your soul. And the fact that he would leave the splendor of heaven to be clothed in flesh was not some small undertaking, but was a burdensome task. And I ask you, if you don't believe, would you trust, would you see Jesus, see his commitment to your salvation? And would you believe in this faithful Savior? But as I said, I want to look at the, the example of Mary as we come to a close. We think of the pondering Mary, the pondering mother. Luke records to us in verse 19 and in 51 that, that, Jesus, uh, that Mary treasured all the things up in her heart, all the things of her son, all the things that concerned Jesus, the things that were said about him and the things that Jesus said. There's something really special about Mary contained within the, the Gospel of Luke. Luke, no doubt, actually got this, this event from Mary. 
Twice Luke records and tells us that Mary treasures these things up. Like quite literally, it's, it's a turning over in her heart. There's actually 12 years between 19 and verse 51 between these events. And Mary's still just turning these things over in her heart. She's still treasuring the things of her son in her heart. It was a reoccurring activity. It has the idea of, of, of continuance. Mary, she didn't forget, but she pondered over these things. And what an example Mary leaves us. She de- demonstrates a, an honorable way, in fact, the right way to respond to Jesus. As we read that even though her and Joseph, they, they didn't understand the sayings of the saying of her son, they were actually left confused at the response of Jesus. But yet she continues to treasure these things in her heart. What we see if Mary is a woman who, who's not prone to wander, but one who is prone to ponder and to consider the prophecies, the life, the words, the actions of her son. We don't see Mary jumping to irrational conclusions when everything doesn't seem right or she doesn't have an answer for everything that she just throws the baby out with the bathwater and says, well, I've had enough of this. This must be nonsense. I'm not putting my faith or trust in any of this. Not at all. And Mary, I feel very, I feel conviction with this, speaks to those of us here tonight who are struggling with putting faith in Jesus for those of us who struggle with not having answers to every single questions that we have about faith, life, Jesus, Christianity. glim minded that we should just sort of have um, just very simplistic understanding. Yes, it's a good thing to know more and want to know more about God and the Bible. Such a good thing. But there's plenty of people who know lots about God, who know lots about Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus. And surely that must liberate our minds. Surely that frees you of the burden of having to to know and grasp everything because of the reality that we can't do it. Gilly can't do it. I can't do it. Maddie can't do it. There's no one here in this building or who has ever lived that will be able to understand everything everything concerning the things of God. We just can't do it because for the simple fact, we don't have the mind of God. And that has to free us of the burden of having to know everything. Mary treasured the things of Jesus and she continued that process. And it's no surprise that when we come to the climactic point of her son's life, that being her, his death and his resurrection, who do we see? Front and center, we see Mary still treasuring, still believing in her son. <clears throat> Maybe you've came here tonight hoping for some yeah, top tips on how to keep your New Year's resolution. I'm sorry to disappoint you that you haven't heard anything about that. And I hope that you're keeping your New Year's resolution well up until this point. But what a wonderful New Year's resolution that we have before us with the example of Mary of pondering over Jesus and treasuring who he is, what he said, the life he lived, and what he has accomplished. 
And I pray that we would allow our hearts time to soak all of who Jesus is into our very being. Let me end with two quotes. Hopefully you'll see them. You'll definitely see the second one. By a guy called Christopher Ashe, an English Bible commentator. Speaking about this passage, this is what he says. Jesus cannot be understood like a theorem. He cannot simply be weighed in the balances of evidence. There's something so deep and wonderful about the person of Jesus that a lifetime of pondering will not suffice. We can both know him deeply and marvel that we cannot comprehend him totally. There's something so precious about Jesus and all he brings to us that we can never treasure him enough. Jesus loves you more than you can even imagine. Jesus is so much more powerful than you can even begin to comprehend. Jesus is so much greater than our wildest dreams. And if you ever think that you have Jesus, the Son of God, somehow squared away in your mind, time and time again, we come to God's word and we realize that is not the case. And even if we were to spend the rest of our days spending every single minute and second considering, marveling, pondering over who Jesus is, we'd only be scratching the surface. And that is our Savior. That is the Son of God. And what a wonder that it is that Jesus, who is the Son of God, has made himself known. And he cares for each and every one of us that he would die on a cross for us. That he would take care of your greatest burden, that being your sins, and he would offer you forgiveness. And this is the task that the Father had set before the Son. And we see, and even at the tender age of 12 years old, the Son being solely devoted to that task of offering you the salvation of your souls. And what a wonder it would be as we start a new year that we would ponder and create a habit of pondering over Jesus and make that a lifetime event. Let me pray. And I ask the guys to come up as they lead us in, a, in our closing pieces. Our Father, we, we thank you for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the faithfulness, the perfect and the ultimate faithfulness of your son, Jesus. And Father, even as, as we consider this passage as a 12-year-old boy, we just marvel. We're left awestruck at the faithfulness, the, the single-mindedness of Jesus. That he'd be so devoted He'd be, he would have his heart and mind set on fulfilling your plans.